Luke chapter 6 this evening. Luke chapter number 6. Last week we began to talk about the beginner's course for advanced discipleship. The beginner's course for advanced discipleship. Luke chapter number 6. Uh, Jesus preaches here the Sermon on the Mount, as I referred to last week. Many Bible scholars, if you want to call them that, are in disagreement whether or not this is the actual recording of the Sermon on the Mount. Some would call this the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, They're so close in nature, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was in a mountain praying, and he came down to the plain. And if you know anything about mountainous areas, even mountains can have plateaus. And, and by definition, that's a plain in a mountain. So I do believe that the sermons are the same. Regardless, they are certainly teaching on the same truths. They both can help us understand the other. But we will study Luke chapter 6. I want to draw your attention before we be, uh, get going. On Luke chapter uh, 12, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days, or Luke chapter 6, verse 12, And it came to pass in those days, that he went out into a mountain to pray, there's that word mountain, and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called unto him his, what's the next word there? Disciples. And of them, notice that, it's very important, and of the disciples, he chose twelve. So if, if I understand this right, there are more than just twelve disciples There was a group of people labeled as disciples, but here the Bible tells us the Lord chose out 12 from that group, and He then called them apostles in verse 13. Uh, Verses 14 through about uh, uh, 16 uh, tell us who those men are. I want to draw your attention to verse 17. The Bible says, And He came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of His disciples so there again that's a large group of disciples we don't know how large it could have been it could have been a hundred folks it could have been the entire multitude we do not know the bible says in a great multitude of people out of all judea and jerusalem and from the sea coast of tyre and sidon which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases so there's this great multitude of people You also have a group that the Bible terms as disciples, which is larger than the original 12. And then he chooses out of that original group of the disciples, 12, which we know as the apostles. So you have kind of a lot of people following the Lord as he starts to teach here. He then goes up on to say, verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. I would suggest to you that's both groups, both the apostles and the disciples, And said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Now we talked about those last week, and we talked that in this sermon, if you will, there are four attitudes that our Lord teaches on, okay? Four attitudes that our Lord teaches on. Last week we spoke about the attitude towards our circumstances. And that was the attitude of being poor in spirit, needing God at all times, every single day. And I'll tell you what, the longer I live, the more I realize I need God. 
There was a time in my youth where I was foolish and I thought I might be able to go at it alone with my experience and my intellect and my knowledge and my ability. And you know what I learned? I always messed up when I relied on those things. And we need God in our lives, and that's what the poor in spirit are. It goes on to say hunger. What are we hungering after? Well, the, the Matthew chapter 5 passage teaches us that we are hungering after righteousness. And I believe a child of God ought to be like God. We ought to be righteous in our endeavor to be holy. So we hunger, we, we, uh, uh, we, we are, are trying to get God in our daily life. We are poor in spirit. Uh, we're just kind of reviewing right now. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. They will hate you. That's a promise of God's word. So we looked at our attitude towards our circumstances. And a disciple of Christ will not always have good circumstances. You could ask Peter how his, how his circumstances were as he stood before the Sanhedrin council. You might ask Paul how his circumstances were when he was beaten thrice of the Jews, when he was shipwrecked, when he was having to be let down out of baskets for fear of people uh, uh, killing him. A disciple's circumstances will not always be good, but how is your attitude in those times, and are you still living a discipleship kind of life? This week, we turn our attention to our attitude towards relationships. Our attitude toward relationships. We'll start reading in verse 27, which will be where our passage of Scripture that we'll study uh, begins tonight. The Bible says, verse 27, But I say unto you which hear... And as I read this, I, I found myself wondering if there were some under the sound of Jesus' voice who were listening but not hearing. L listen, I wonder if there were some in, in the company of this multitude and the, the original number of the disciples and the twelve apostles that Jesus chose out. I wonder why he had to preface it, you that hear. I wonder if there were some that were just listening and not hearing. It's a temptation now in our modern day culture to come to church and focus on everything else. Uh, parents, how are you teaching your children to behave in church? At what point does sleeping move, you know, no longer allowed? At what point is coloring not ideal for your child? You see, if we're having to wean them off the coloring book in the youth department, there's probably a problem. And I'm not criticizing parents. It's your choice, but I ask that you would seek the Lord's guidance in the matter because you are training the next generation of people who will listen to preaching. And I'm afraid that coloring books have dumbed us down to the point where we only have such a short attention span. Now, we can sit in front of NCIS for an hour, but man, preaching, if it's more than 15 minutes and the preacher hasn't got to a good illustration, we're out. And, and here, Jesus says, Now, I say unto you which hear, beyond just, uh, just the kids that might need hearing, how many words is okay for a husband and a wife to exchange during the preaching hour? I mean, I understand leaning over and saying, Hey, honey, that was good. Hey, honey, you really needed that. No, 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 don't say that. Don't say that. But 
I wonder if we're having conversation in the middle of church when there's been an offering time and a handshaking time. I wonder why we can no longer fight the urge to lean over and say, hey, honey, where do you want to go eat after church? While the preacher is preaching about the holiness of our God, we're worried about whether we're going to eat Mexican or Italian. I'm not criticizing, but it struck me as Jesus had to say, hey, you that are in the audience that are actually hearing what I'm saying. And that's, that, that just caught my attention. I hope that was maybe a help, and maybe you're mad at me. I'll tell you what, as long as that guy on the front row isn't mad at me, I'm okay. So uh, no problem if you're mad at me. I don't want you to be mad at me. But he says, I say unto you which hear... Notice, this must have been a difficult message after, uh, you, when you're poor, you're blessed. When, when you're hungry, you're blessed. Now notice, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of, that, uh, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do unto you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And notice this. And ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the thankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Gracious Heavenly Father, I love you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to preach to this wonderful congregation tonight. I hope that you'll use this time in some way to speak to somebody. I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Can I start out this evening by asking you, who is your enemy? Now, before we get into the message on how to deal with our enemies, I think it would be appropriate to define who our enemies are, right? Certainly, it's not an easy thing for a Christian to admit that they have an enemy, but here the Bible says that disciples would have enemies. So who are yours? I can say, based upon other scripture that I have found, that I don't believe your enemy can be your brother, Biblically, 
Now, I believe actually there are probably some cases where a brother in the auditorium offends another brother and they consider themselves enemies, but that is not a biblical picture of discipleship or, frankly, Christianity at all. And so, so who is our enemy? Well, I believe our enemy must be an unsaved person. And because of their, their worldview and their reality that is live for the moment and live free, and our worldview that says we think about eternity first and we honor God with our life, Above our pleasure, we try to please Him. Those worldviews collide. And even if we were silent in our endeavor to live a holy life, even if we were not vocal on, on certain sins, whether or not we said homosexuality was a sin or not, they would be convicted just due to our lifestyle. That we're not in the same places that they are not, and that we're not doing the same things that they are not. And so our lifestyle is counter-opposite. Well, actually, I think that's a double negative. It's completely opposite of their lifestyle. And so by nature, we are at at different ends of the spectrum. They are old creatures. We are new creatures in Christ. They have the natural man's mind, and we have the mind of Christ. Every day we try to become better, not so that we can get a promotion, but because we can be worthy of our God and what He's asked us to be. And every day they try to be the same as they've always been, doing the same old things. So oftentimes this collision occurs where they view themselves as our enemy. So how do we deal with that? This evening we're going to look at three practical instructions for dealing with impractical relationships. Three practical instructions for dealing with impractical relationships. Number one, we must have an active affection. Verse 27, I want you to see this with me. An active affection. But I say unto you which hear, read the next word with me aloud, love. Let's say that again. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. It's difficult for me to love things that I am not naturally inclined to love. For instance, cats. Now, Miss Ada, you're a lovely lady. I enjoy having you up here at the church. But I do not feel the same way as you do on this matter of cats, this theological issue of cats. Miss Ada loves cats. I've heard many stories about her cats. And I do not love cats. It's difficult for me to love things that I am not naturally inclined to love. Um, I do not love unsweet tea. That's like the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. You need some sugar to make it good. Uh, raise your hand if you like unsweet tea, if you enjoy the taste. There you go. We'll have an altar call after the service. You're welcome to come down. No, but it's, it's hard for me to love things that I'm not already naturally inclined to love. I love a dog. I grew up around them. I, I like having them. Uh, I like petting them. I think they're clever. I think it's unique, the things that they can do. A, a dog can herd cattle, or it can uh, retrieve ducks, or it can smell drugs. That's pretty awesome to me. Cats, 
do none of those things. <laughs> Eat my trash. That's what the cats do. But here in our passage of Scripture, Jesus is not giving us an option. Notice. And he's not giving us an out by saying, well, you may not be naturally inclined in this direction. He's saying it doesn't matter how you find yourself leaning. If you're going to be my disciple, you must love your enemy. That's tough. Because I'll tell you right now, if someone views themselves as my enemy, I find it's going to be very difficult to love that person. How are we going to love them? Well, we're to show an active affection, number one, emotionally. It really isn't whether or not you love them, it's whether or not God wants you to love them. See, that's the whole crux of the matter. When I was working for my several employers, I, my first job I had, I was working at a cutting horse farm, you've heard that many times. My first day, my boss, Jimmy Purcelli, you know what he told me? He said, Andrew, this stuck with me, and actually it's affecting me in my entire life. He says, here's what I want you to do. You may not be good at riding horses, you may not be good at picking up a bell of hay, but if you're going to work for me, you better walk fast. And he didn't even give me direction as to where to go. He just said, if you're walking to the refrigerator, get a Dr. Pepper. If you're going to go walk to get a horse out of the stall to bathe it, Andrew, you walk fast. And so if you watch me and my wife walk side by side, there ain't no side by side. I, I basically take over my wife. I mean, she's steps behind me. My daughters are, Daddy, don't leave us. And I'm just naturally walking. It's Jimmy Purcelli's fault. And so from that day on, I started walking fast. When I was in California working at the House of Golf, me and my friend, uh, uh, Bud, we, we started working there together. And one of the very first things they told us was, they said, boys, I know y'all like to golf. And I know there's golf clubs in the golf shop. I know there's golf balls. And I know there's a hitting screen where you can practice your golf game. But we don't want you playing golf all day. We want you cleaning the store. I said, what in the world kind of slave shop is this? You're going to put me around golf balls and golf clubs and say I can't hit them? But, I, and I, I've mentioned to you before how they always wanted us straightening up the racks of clothing if no one was in the store. And so all day long we'd walk around inching the clothing so that, there was, that each and every garment was evenly spaced. We'd follow behind the, the customers with a vacuum right at their feet so that they didn't track dirt into the, uh, into the store. I exaggerate a little bit, but my point is, you do what the boss wants. And I don't like to vacuum, but when Sunshine and Chris, that was the owners of the golf store, when they told me to vacuum, you know what I did? I vacuumed. Because that's what the boss wanted. Jimmy Purcelli asked me to walk fast, and he was writing my check, so I walked fast. It doesn't matter really if we're naturally inclined to love our enemy. God says, if you're going to be my disciple, you are to love the things that I love. You're to love righteousness because God loves righteousness. And you're to hate sin because God is appalled at sin. You're to love your enemy, you know why? For God so loved the world. You know who's in the world? Sinners. Evil men and women. 
adulterers, fornicators, backbiters, deceivers, mockers. That's who's in the world. For God so loved the world. We have to have an active affection, first of all, emotionally. Second of all, practically. Practically. Notice this in the next verse, verse 27. uh, In the same verse, love your enemies. Notice this. Do good to them which hate you. Now, it's one thing for me to say, I love you. It's a whole other thing for me to put that into practice. Well, I can say I love you all day long, but unless I show my wife some affection every now and again, she may stop to believe the words that I'm saying. So how are we supposed to display or practically show our love to our enemies? C.S. Lewis put it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. Do not waste your time bothering whether or not you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. When you put your feet to your compassion, what happens is it starts to affect your heart. And while you say, Brother Andrew, i got some people that I am not naturally inclined to love. Well, join the line, but God loves them regardless, and he commands his disciples to love their enemies. And so what do we do? We start to do, we practically put our affection forward. We do it, number one, emotionally, number two, practically, number three, verbally. Verse number 28. Verse number 28. Bless them that curse you. Bless them that curse you. Now, before you look back up at me, take your eyes to uh, verse number 22. The Bible says, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, shall reproach you, notice this, and cast out your name as evil. Now, occasionally, if somebody caught me at the wrong moment, they could probably accurately sum up my life as maybe that was an evil act. Maybe I'd done something out of anger or Uh, I've done something kind of out of reaction. I don't act the way that Christ would. And somebody could say, boy, that was not very, that was not very righteous of you. And I would be guilty of that. But who is this talking about who these people are, are casting out their name and saying, this is an evil man. Well, I want you to see who it's talking about. Verse number 21. Blessed are ye that hunger. What are they hungering after? Righteousness. Blessed are ye when you're poor. What are you poor in? Your need for God. So the people who their names are getting cast out is evil men. They are Christians who need God every day and they recognize it. They're Christians who are living a righteous lifestyle. And in verse number 21, blessed are ye that weep now. What are you weeping for? We covered this last week. You're weeping for people's hurting condition. So it's a Christian who acts as if they need God, a Christian who lives a righteous life, and a Christian who is emotionally affected by people's hurting condition. That doesn't sound like a bad person to me at all. 
In fact, that sounds like somebody who cares. Somebody who's trying to make the world a better place. But don't forget, they will cast your name out as evil. They will curse you regardless of whether you're guilty or not. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to bless them. We've covered this, but this is the same word eulogy is, is conceived from. You to look at them, and here's what's easy to do. Face to face with our enemy, we act like Jesus. The moment we get around our Christian friends, you will not believe what so-and-so did to me. Now, we kind of justify it not as gossip because they're not a Christian. But what happens is we are to publicly and verbally uh, uh, help and, and uplift our brothers and our enemies. That's what the Bible says. Bless them that curse you. But we, as soon as we start to get around our Christian friends, it's like all the walls of Christianity come down and we start to open up about all the wrongs that have been done with us all week long at work. And can I say, this is an encouragement to you husbands, be careful what you tell your wives. Certainly I want your wife to know everything you know, but sometimes it's better if your wife doesn't know every dirty detail that you know about another person. Do you think it would be wise for me to, to find out that somebody in our church is struggling with sin or they're going through something and me run home and tell Amy about it? You know what it does? It ruins Amy's day and helps no one. So here's my encouragement. I want, I want husbands and wives to, to always communicate. That's not what I'm talking about. Just be careful that you don't skew your wife's perception of someone in this church based off of a tidbit of a knowledge that you have that may or may not be true. Wives, be careful what you tell your husbands off Facebook. I am one that does not have a Facebook. Uh, because, because honestly, I can't handle all that comes with it. But there are many people who are far better Christians than me. My wife is one of them. And she has a Facebook but she has to guard what she tells me on Facebook so that my perception when I come to Sunday morning is, oh, there's that family. Just because they're willing to broadcast it doesn't mean you should too. We have to guard our speech. May it be seasoned with grace like our Savior's was. May we be careful about what we say, as James puts it. Oh, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Oh, our tongue can steer mighty vessels, is what he puts it, like a boat rudder is what he's saying. So be careful the great matter that your tongue can start. So we must help and encourage and uplift even our enemies verbally. Fourthly, how are we supposed to actively put our affection to use? Number four, spiritually. Notice in verse 20, uh, 27, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, notice, and what's the next word? Pray for them which despitefully use you. We're instructed to put our affection to use practically. In other words, if I know Brother Woody has a, a need, and me and Brother Woody are not enemies, so don't get the wrong uh, perception there, but if I know Brother Woody has a need, I'm to help him. I'm to uh, uh, go out of my way to meet that need. 
I know that uh, I'm trying to, I'm going to do my best to practically put to use my compassion towards another, whether it's my brother or my enemy. But there are some matters that cannot be handled practically. No matter how much you shower someone in love, did you know you cannot completely change their life? You may not be able to entirely change someone's perception of you with a few kind notes. So what do you do? Pray. The Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Bible tells us that the king's hand, heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it as the rivers of water. I just believe with all my heart that God can change someone else's heart. And he can soften maybe someone's aggravation or aggression towards me. So we are to actively put our affection forward. Number two, we must have a passive reaction. We must have a passive reaction. We're to effective, uh, actively shower them in affection, and we are to passively react to their aggression. Notice this in verse 29. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek... Offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Verse 29 teaches us the principle of repetitive lashes. Did you know if someone truly views themselves as your enemy, if they know something gets on your nerves or cuts you to the quick, guess what? They're going to keep doing it. And that's what verse 29 is saying. If a man strikes you on one cheek, turn again the other. Don't react. Be ready for another blow to come down the pike. Be, be willing to passively react when they strike that you don't strike back. You know the best biblical illustration of this that I can think of? It's when our Lord is bent over at a stone in the center of the town there, and a soldier takes a cat of nine tails, and he hits our Savior across the back. Now some believe it was 39 times. It's not in the Bible that way. One, our Lord did not react. Two, our Lord did not react. Over and over and over again, our Savior was beaten and flogged, and He did not react. You know what He tells us? You know what's coming. If someone truly views themselves as your enemy, they're going to do their best to attack you. And if they know something gets you, they're going to continue to do it. So what you have to do is not react when all of these lashes come down the pike. When I was in football, we had this one drill. We called it bull in the middle. And there was this tackling dummy. Uh, and the dummy uh, was padded, but in the back it had kind of rounded, uh, a, a rounded cage so that when the dummy was tackled, it bounced right back up. And we'd put the entire football team in a large circle around the dummy. And the coach would say, hut! And the first guy who the dummy was facing, the guy would go hit the dummy and fall over. And the dummy would get up. The guy had to get out of the way so the next player could then go tackle the dummy. This drill went on for five, ten minutes. Hut! 
and the dummy just sat in the middle and uh, took every blow we had to give it. Here's a question. You ever feel like the bull in the middle? You ever feel like blow after blow is hitting you? You ever just had one of those days where it seems like everything just stacks up on itself? You know what that is? The principle of repetitive lashes. How you handle yourself in that moment is whether or not you're willing to be a disciple of our Lord. Oh, let me say that differently. Whether or not you're willing to put the principles to, to, into your life that a disciple of the Lord would. I think everybody in this room wants to be a disciple. Whether or not we're willing to do what the Lord asks of us to be a disciple is another thing altogether. David had Saul so angry at him that in the span of three chapters, Saul tried to kill him nearly a half dozen times. Chapter 18 of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul throws a, a javelin at David twice. And then Saul realizes that's not going to work, so he marries him to Michael. He gives Michael, his daughter, to, to David, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to request a dowry from him. But this is how sick... Saul was at this point in his life. He said, I'm going to go make him fight Philistines all by himself. So he requests of David the foreskins of a hundred Philistines as a, a exchange for Michael's hand in marriage. That's kind of weird. Would you agree? David goes, slays 200 Philistines and delivers what Saul has asked for. Saul's angry again because he cannot kill David no matter how hard he tries. There again, Saul re resorts back to the javelin. Saul commands every servant in his kingdom that if they see David, they're to kill him immediately. Saul stakes out David's home with Michael present and uh, is trying to kill David while he's sleeping. Saul is so aggravated and, 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 and hateful of David at this time in his life that Jonathan begins to speak on David's behalf. Now, Jonathan is Saul's son. And Jonathan begins to speak on David's behalf. And, and Jonathan is only trying to speak some sense into dad. But have you ever noticed that sometimes people have their minds made up and there's no talking sense into them? And no matter how hard you try, but dad, he's done nothing wrong. But dad, he hasn't sinned. Dad, there's nothing... Saul gets so mad at Jonathan. I, I'm, I, this is the Bible. Saul gets so mad at Jonathan, he attempts to kill his own son because Jonathan is assisting David. Now, I think we at that point could say that J Saul viewed himself as David's enemy. Would you agree? I mean, he's nearly tried to kill the guy several, several times. So... What do you think David's reaction was when he found out Saul died? Uh, he mourned, put on sackcloth and ashes, and commanded everybody under his watch to mourn with him. Despite the many times that Saul had lashed out at David, David reacted in this principle of repetitive lashes the wisest way he could. He extended to Saul so many times the benefit of the doubt, and yet Saul never deserved it. But David was displaying the traits of a disciple. The principle of repetitive lashes. Secondly, the principle of relinquished losses. The principle of relinquished losses. Look at verse number 30. Verse number 30. 
Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Here's a question. What is the thing in your life that you are willing to lose a relationship over? For some, it's a mower. For some, it's a camper. For some, it's a bass boat or golf clubs. What is the thing in your life that if somebody were to borrow and not give back to you in the right shape or not get back, give back to you at all, what is the thing that it would take to put you over the edge so that you would no longer react like a disciple? Is it a 20? A hundred? Is it a thousand dollars? What is it? Because the principle here is lend and expect nothing back. You see, there's certain things that we would extend to our friends. I, uh, Brother Luke, how long have you and Brother Brian Archer been friends? Since eighth grade, okay? In that time, have you ever known Brian Archer to do anything stupid? No, never. Right. Yeah, amen. It's a good friend. Yeah, don't ask Brian if he's ever known Luke to do anything stupid. Brother Luke, would you say that you would extend Brian certain, I don't know, grace that maybe you wouldn't extend everybody else because of the relationship that you have with him? Yeah, because, I mean, y'all are friends. I mean, y'all work together on a daily basis. Y'all are buds since eighth grade. I know that I would do that with Cody Sears or JT Zorns. They're, they're, my, they're my buddies. I mean, they're my homeboys. And I don't even know what that means, but they are that if I ever had any. And, and I'm, I'm saying I would extend to them certain graces that I probably would not be naturally inclined to extend to somebody else. You know, if, if, if maybe Cody breaks my pitching wedge because he gets mad, which Cody would never do that. But if Cody ever did that, I would extend to him a certain grace. Now, if some random guy at the golf course swings my club and breaks it, I'm going to be like, hey, guy, what are you doing? Because I don't know him. But the principle, as hard as it may be to digest, is in reference to your neighbor or your enemy, treat them as you would like to be treated. And it can be said like this, treat them as you would expect your best friend to treat you. Because that's what a disciple would do. You would extend graces that would not naturally occur because that's what the Lord has asked you to do. What loss would you be willing to relinquish to gain a relationship? Proverbs verse 19 of chapter 18 says this, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Once you've lost a brother, man, to get him back is a tremendous process. And that's a brother. What's your enemy like? A few years ago, my wife called me on the phone. She said, honey, you're not going to like this phone call. And I said, okay, are we pregnant again? Um, and that actually happened the other day. But uh, um, no, she said, honey, you're not going to like this phone call. Um, we've been broken into. And our house had been, the door standing wide open, all of our stuff was strewn on the floor. Anything that wasn't of any value, because everything that was valuable, they packed up in their truck and took off. 
And I remember as I'm sitting on the couch, the, the feeling was so surreal. I mean, my parents came over, Mandy actually came over, Mandy came over, and we're all kind of sitting around, and we're like, what? I mean, is this real? I mean, am I, am I really out as I'm itemizing those, this list about $10,000 worth of stuff? Some of it, like, very uh, precious stuff, like my wife's uh, grandmother's wedding ring. Gone. And I remember somebody asking me, what do you feel like? I mean, what, what are you feeling like? You know what I felt like? Relieved. You say, what do you mean? I was thankful my family wasn't at home. Because I heard just the other day of guys breaking in and shooting people and just taking their stuff. I mean, they, they didn't know these people. They're just shooting them for things. I was relieved because I had homeowner's insurance that was going to replace all the things because things are replaceable. You know what's not? People. I can't replace my wife. I can't replace my daughter's. Did you know you can't replace even your enemy? And once you sever a relationship, guess what? It's gone for good. Don't lose a, 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 even an enemy over a thing. You know, if you're going to lend, don't expect it back. If it gets back, good. But if not, don't worry about it. So, we have to have an active affection. We must have a passive Reaction. Notice number three and we'll be done. We have been instructed with a radical prescription. Verse 32, I want you to see this and we'll be done. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, and what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. Notice this. But love ye your enemies. We've, we've looked at that. And do good. Yeah, that's the active uh, affection you're going to display. And lend hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. Notice, this is, the, this is the radical prescription. And ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye merciful as your father also is merciful. You know what our example for our relationships are? No matter whether, no matter if it's your brother or your enemy, you know what our example is? God. How he treats everyone ought to be the way we should seek to treat everyone. For he is kind even to the unthankful. I want you to take your Bibles to the book of Psalm. Psalm 73, if you will. Psalm 73. This passage struck me. And we're actually going to read almost the entire chapter. It won't be the entire chapter, but almost. But this is the reason I believe we ought to seek an endeavor to treat even our uh, the 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 enemy of our life the the biggest enemy we have we ought to seek to treat them as kind and as graciously and this is really more importantly as god would treat them this is the reason why verse number 1 of psalm 73 truly god is good to israel 
even to such as are of a clean heart. I believe that. That's good. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well slipped, nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. The psalmist here is describing his jealousy of the way the wicked are treated. He's saying, I I don't understand how life is so good and I'm living a righteous lifestyle. I'm trying to be a disciple. I'm trying to do the things that I know God would have me to do. As for me, well, I was slipping. I was struggling. Every day was a grind and every day I looked at them with tremendous envy because it seemed like life was so good for them. Verse number 8, they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? Or is there knowledge in the Most High? That is straight blasphemy is what he's referring to. They are blaspheming God. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. What he's saying, if you don't understand, he's saying, I feel like all of my effort in being the Christian I know I'm supposed to be was completely in vain. I'm living the righteous life, they're living a wicked life, and I feel like they have it better than me. Verse number 14, for all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. This is the reason you can't miss church here. This is is the reason. Verse number 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolate? How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they're utterly consumed with terrors? As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant, I was a beast before thee. You know what he says? I was acting like a donkey. I knew it was right. And yet somehow this world had made me jealous of all that it had to offer. And I was before you like a mule 
no sense, no logic, no ability to reason. Then he says in verse 23, Nevertheless, while their end is terrible, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. Look, here's what the psalmist was saying. He was saying, I thought that I, I had become envious of their life. You know what I realized? My enemies don't have it good at all. Sometimes I may think as they criticize me, as they look down their nose at me, they judge me for trying to live right, they gossip about me, they talk about me, they do all these things that may discourage me. Then I went to the sanctuary and I realized, oh, I have it much better than they do. Because one day, God's going to be on my side and He won't be on theirs. So you know the reason that you ought to handle your relationships like God would handle His? I don't know if it's necessarily because we're trying to win them. I think that's a good reason to treat them well. Certainly the reason we have a lot of people say, well, there's a lot of hypocrites in the church. Probably it's because there are. We ought to try dealing with our enemies the right way because it's right. We ought to try dealing with our enemies like God would deal with them because that's what a disciple does. But you know another reason we ought to deal with them that way? Because this is as good as it gets for them. I'm not trying to say that with any type of vengeance or as if we're gaining something. I'm saying it from a sorrowful heart. You think that the worst problem they have is you? Well, the worst problem they have is they're going to be standing at the wrong judgment. And you have God on your side. And if God says, walk like me, talk like me, act like me, you know what it behooves His disciples to do? Walk like Him, talk like Him, and act like Him. And in doing so, we will begin to handle our relationships appropriately. Now, each and every week on sporting events, they'll show, like, especially in NFL games, they'll show maybe a star quarterback or something or somebody on the team visiting like St. Jude's Medical Facility, or I think the Cowboys go to Cook's Children's Hospital almost every week. Here's a question I have for you, and I'm not trying to mock. I think what they do is admirable, but would those Cowboys be going to visit those same children if they did not have their condition? You see, it is the condition that necessitates the visit. Tony Romo's never showed up at my front door wanting to see me. You know the difference between me and those children? Those children many times have a terrible plague on their life. Whether it's cancer, whether it's a heart failure. But, but they have something bad in their life that those guys want to go and help, want to try to help to be an encouragement to them. To offer them a little hope in their hopelessness. You know why you ought to act like God in your relationships? To offer a little hope and a lot of lost people's hopelessness. 
to show them you don't handle relationships like everybody else. You started to handle them like God. And you may not be perfect in this matter because sometimes it's not easy to love an enemy. But I think we ought to strive, if we're going to be a disciple of our Lord, to handle our circumstances like He would have us handle them and to handle our relationships like He would have us handle them.